Hi, everybody. I'm Ember. And I'm Quinn. Together, we're best friends who happen to be married, pervy, dark, and full of humor. We come together to bring you the Fiercely Altered Perspective podcast, also known as the Fap Pod. One so good, it'll be hard to beat. Coming Friday, March 2nd, 2018. Join us each week as we cover all those creepy topics we secretly enjoy. From true crime to Tinkerbell and every dark, delicious thing in between. Stay tuned at the end of each episode where we'll have a little game of guess who. Meaning, we'll give you a description for the following week's episode that will require you to do a little bit of armchair investigation to uncover who or what we will be covering. So join us on our social media where we will keep the details moist until our release. Oh, God. (laughs) We can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the Fap Pod. And be sure to join our Facebook group, the official Fap Pod group, for discussions and sneak peeks. We're busting down the door so you can see things from our perspective, and we hope you stick around to tell us yours. Until then, keep your eyes open and your palms soft. See you in March. Hard to beat. Hello, I'm Lude Gallifrey. I'm Sage Murray. And I'm Leon Felger. And we are the Occulte Veritatis Podcast. We talk about anything that intrigues, horrifies, or interests us, including true crime. Serial killers. Military conspiracies. <laughs> and other mysteries and horrors of reality. So get cozy with your favorite alcoholic beverage. Oh, Smoke a joint or two. Only if it's legally purchased medicinal marijuana, of course. And tune in. We would love to have you. You would. You can find all of our links, all of the ways you can subscribe, and the rest of our bullshit at www.ovpod.ca. We hope you listen in soon. On July 2, 1976, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed its ruling that the death penalty was unconstitutional, allowing it to be reinstated as punishment for certain crimes. Less than three weeks later, on July 19th, Gary Gilmore committed his first murder. In 1979, Norman Mailer published a Pulitzer Prize-winning nonfiction novel immortalizing the life and death of Gilmore called The Executioner's Song, which served as the basis for a made-for-TV movie of the same name. This is based on a true crime. I'm Chelsea, and I love true crime. And I'm David, and I love horror movies. And welcome to this week's episode. It's actually episode 25. So before the show, you heard some promos for our pod friends. The first is the Fiercely Altered Perspective podcast, aka the Fap Pod. And we're bringing back their promo this week because they just launched, actually March 2nd, which is today when we're recording. They're awesome. It's uh, Ember, who was previously a host on the Color Me Dead podcast, and she's hosting this new one with her husband, Quinn. And I've already listened to the first episode. It was like Christmas. I woke up this morning and I put it on on my way to work. It's excellent. Actually, their first episode is about the founder of Jameson Whiskey actually being a terrible person that paid to see a little girl cannibalized. Congrats on launching the uh, the show. Yes. 
And the second promo is for the Occulte Veritatis podcast, which, uh, you know, I'm sold on the Latin. I took several years of Latin in high school. Um, and this is hosted by Ood, Sage, and Leon. And yes, David, Ood is a reference to Doctor Who. <laughs> Nice. Um, and they're great. They're like a true crime, creepy story, but also a kind of funny comedy podcast, Canada based. So definitely check the two of them out. There's one more promo, but we're going to play it at the end of the show. And uh, I'll talk about who that's for in my now playing. Awesome. Well, we uh, launched our latest Patreon bonus episode, and that one was on the 1982 horror film The Entity. Check out the reward tiers. You do get the exclusive monthly episode at all levels yes as low as one dollar gets you access to bonus content but for five dollars you can get a rad little gift pack that has some buttons and some really neat die cut stickers that you can't get anywhere else so definitely head on over to our patreon.com slash based on a true crime. And we do have some awesome new reviews this week, reviews that made me really, really happy. Um, so thank you so much to Crystal JMM, Beautiful Charlotte, Tiger Blood Kitten One, and Nobel Winner on Apple Podcasts. And also thank you to Thomas, Lisa M, and Lisa W on Facebook. Awesome. Also with correct guesses for the topic of this episode. Which I was surprised how quickly people got it. I should stop doubting our <laughs> listeners because they are on top of it every Tuesday. Yes. Makes me feel bad about that week I forgot to post the teaser Tuesday. <laughs> I'd be terrible at this game. Uh, but yeah, special shout out to Tashana and Chippy TFT on Twitter. Also Lisa on Facebook and Ames in Wonderland on Instagram. Yes, and Lisa, she's also a member of the cult and she was very excited. Her first time getting a teaser Tuesday. Um, and I guess she had seen the movie a while ago. Couldn't remember the name of the movie, but recognized that it was Gary Gilmore right away. Cool. Awesome job. Um, and yeah, so the episode that we're doing this week is The Executioner Song. It's our first made-for-TV movie, but I almost don't want to call it that because the quality of the movie is so good. I think that you can be misled by thinking of it as just a made-for-TV movie. Um, yeah, totally. And especially, you know, we uh, we bought the DVD for it and it's in widescreen and it, it looks like a film. Yeah, and thank you so much to our Patreon supporters who, you know, made us not feel uh, silly about buying a DVD for this movie. I just, I saw the trailer and I just needed to cover it right away because... I was very interested in this story. And you can't beat Tommy Lee Jones. No, you cannot beat Tommy Lee Jones. Plain Big fan. a murderer. Uh, well, on that note, why don't we get into the story of Gary Gilmore? All right. So Gary Mark Gilmore was born on December 4th, 1940 in Stonewall, Texas, to parents Bessie and Frank Gilmore Sr. He was the second oldest of four children, one an older brother, Frank Jr., and two younger brothers, Galen and Michael. He had a tumultuous home life. His father was an alcoholic and con man who would severely whip and beat his sons while demanding obedience and love from them. Bessie was an ex-Mormon who clung to her husband but insisted that her children never physically touch her. As a child, Gary had hoped to become a man of God, but his plans were quickly derailed as he came of age in a home rife with abuse and marred by his mother's deep-seated superstitions. When Bessie was playing with a Ouija board as a young girl, she believed that she summoned a, de a demonic spirit that followed her family through the years, causing tragedies, including the death of one of her sisters and the paralysis of another. One night, after marrying Frank and starting their family, Bessie was spending the night at her mother-in-law's house, Faye, when the demon struck again. Faye claimed to be a medium, and that day had conducted a seance to contact the spirit of a suspected murderer who had recently passed. Faye was exhausted after the seance, and Bessie helped put her to bed. Later that night, Bessie awoke to the vision of an inhuman creature in her bed, and she raced out to the hallway. 
Faye was already waiting for her, shouting at her to get out and saying that the creature knew who she was. When she entered Gary's room, the creature was already there, leaning over Gary and staring into his eyes. Bessie grabbed her children and fled the house. Shortly after this incident, Faye passed away. Perhaps influenced by his mother's visions, Gary began suffering from horrible nightmares about being beheaded and the unshakable feeling that someone and something was out to get him. Bessie decided that this meant the creature she saw had taken over Gary's soul. It likely didn't help that her visions coincided with Gary beginning to lash out and misbehave. Bessie also frequently told her sons a story about witnessing an execution as a child. She told them that her father had forced her to attend it and she harbored a serious grudge against him. As an adult, Michael researched the incident and found that it couldn't have actually happened. Still, this repeated story seemed to have a profound effect on Gary, who developed a belief that he was destined to die violently. Due to his father's career as a professional con man, the family moved all over the country, finally settling in Portland, Oregon when Gary was 10. Under Bessie's insistence, Frank began to make an honest living. Gary started drinking when he was just 12 years old, and he developed a need for bravado, playing chicken with oncoming trains and putting his wet fingers in electrical outlets. Ooh, bad idea. Yeah terrible idea but he didn't have the best role models growing up in this household so by 14 he dropped out of high school and he was arrested for the first time for stealing a car he was sent to the mclaren reform school in woodburn oregon gary stayed at the reform school for a year but it did nothing to curb his criminal tendencies after his release he was in and out of prison for petty and some less petty thefts before turning 18 gary was able to avoid extensive prison sentences but when he was finally too old for juvenile detention his crimes landed him in the Oregon State Correctional Institution. He was imprisoned there from 1960 to 1961, once again for car theft. That same year, his father Frank was diagnosed with lung cancer. In 1962, Gary was arrested in Vancouver, Washington for driving without a license and with an open container of alcohol. He was sent to the Rocky Butte Jail in Portland. I know you want me to say Rocky Butt, David, but I'm not going to say it. Uh, Oh, wait. I just said it. Darn it. (laughs) And it was while he was serving this sentence that his father finally passed away from that cancer. When a correctional officer informed Gary of his father's death, he tore up his cell and attempted to commit suicide by slitting his wrists. After his father's death, Gary lashed out physically against both guards and his fellow inmates to the point where the staff began heavily drugging him with prolixin, an antipsychotic which Gary said had paralyzing effects on him. Finally, his mother intervened and the regimen was stopped. He was released from prison a year later, but was quickly arrested again for committing an armed robbery for $11. After serving another short sentence and then being arrested again for armed robbery in 1964, Gary was finally deemed a habitual offender and he was sentenced to serve a 15-year sentence at the Oregon State Penitentiary. While Gary was in prison, his younger brother Galen died after being stabbed in the stomach. This wound itself might not have been fatal, but the family had no money for medical care and he ended up passing away. Uh, Once again, Gary responded to the death of his family member by lashing out and as a result, he often wound up being placed in solitary confinement. And while he was in this prison, Gary was diagnosed for the first time with antisocial personality disorder. During his extensive alone time, Gary studied literature, wrote poetry, and made art. He was actually very intelligent with an IQ of 133, despite not having the motivation to attain even a high school diploma. His art won a few contests, and in 1972, he was granted a conditional release in order to attend art school. Gary was placed in a halfway house in Eugene, Oregon, but when it came time to register for classes at Lane Community College, Gary never showed up. Within a month of his release, Gary was once again arrested for armed robbery. 
During his trial on February the 12th, 1973, Gary made a plea to the judge for leniency, referring to a set of notes he'd made. During this plea, he famously told the judge, quote, you can keep a person locked up for too long and gave his explanation for skipping out on art school and committing the robbery. He said, quote, One day I'm in the pen for nine years, and the next day I'm free. And I was kind of shook. While waiting to register for classes, Gary had begun drinking, and afraid to return to the halfway house drunk, he instead left, making his way to Portland. Gary continued, quote, I wanted to study art, and that is what I was there for. After I left, it occurred to me to go back, but I didn't. Freedom tasted pretty good, and I hadn't been out in a long time. Soon, Gary found himself broke, and with no job experience or prospects, plus the fact that he was essentially a fugitive, Gary committed the armed robbery. Gary finished his plea saying, quote, I stagnated in prison a long time, and I have wasted most of my life, at least half of it, probably the best years of my life. I've had a brief taste of freedom, and to tell you the truth, I had almost forgotten what I am missing. I'm not a stupid person, although I've done a lot of foolish and stupid things, but I want freedom, and I realize full well that the only way I can maintain it is to quit breaking the law. He also made an ominous promise to the judge, quote, I have got problems, and if you give me more time, I am going to compound them. The judge, while not entirely without sympathy for Gary, felt that the severity of the crime, plus Gary's status as a repeat offender, uh, really tied his hands with the sentencing. And Gary was sentenced to nine years with the possibility of an early parole for good behavior. But just as Gary promised, his behavior in prison was not good. He lashed out violently and attempted suicide multiple times. They wanted to put him on that prolixin again, but Gary vehemently refused. Uh, later on, while he was in prison for murder, he he wrote to his girlfriend about his negative experience being on prolixin. Quote, I was once deprived almost totally of my dreams for about three weeks. It was while I was on prolixin and couldn't sleep. Luckily, I knew the importance of dreams, so I compensated the best I could. I would let my mind wander into the hallucinations that were imposing themselves on me, but never enough that I couldn't pull out of it. I believe that I learned something that few people ever understand. What a terrible thing it would be to be insane. The facilities at the Oregon State Penitentiary were not sufficient to deal with Gary's frequent violent outbursts, and in 1975, he was transferred to a maximum security facility in Marion, Illinois. Hey. Some personal uh, some personal connections there. Ten minutes from where I grew up. Ten minutes. Yep. We've driven through there quite a few times. We have. Uh, so while there, Gary began writing to his cousin, Brenda Nickel, in Provo, Utah. Although she hadn't seen Gary since he was a child, she firmly believed that if he were given the opportunity for freedom in a loving community with a job lined up, just as he had talked about that day in court, he would be able to turn his life around. Just three years into his sentence, as a result of Brenda strongly petitioning in his favor, Gary was once again given a conditional release. As part of the conditional release, Gary was sent to Provo, Utah to live with his cousin's family in April of 1976. He was set up with a job at his uncle, Vern Damico's shoe repair shop, but only lasted 10 days before moving on to work briefly at an insulation factory. He made $3.50 an hour at this job, and he spent it all on alcohol and barbiturates. His time in prison had not prepared him for the monotony of a regular job, and he quickly returned to his compulsive habits of drinking too much and stealing anything that caught his eye. And this is reenacted in the film, I think, yes, pretty well. Yes, this is where the movie actually starts. So we'll talk about this a little bit more, but they kind of generalize his early life by saying that I think he had spent 12 years in prison, which is probably what it wound up being. I think he spent 18 of his 36 years behind bars. This is where the two threads meet. Well, it was while living in Provo that Gary met 19-year-old Nicole Baker Barrett, a beautiful single mother of two who had already been married three times. 
She said that when their eyes met, Gary said to her, quote, I know you. And Nicole felt that too. A firm believer in reincarnation, Nicole said she felt like she had always known him and had always loved him. Nicole's family did not approve of her relationship with 35-year-old Gary, but their objections seemed to only make Gary pursue Nicole more aggressively. And while the relationship had its rocky moments, for the most part, she returned his passionate, obsessive love. Still, he scared her at times. Once, she even asked him if he was the devil after saying she felt an evil presence in him. Gary moved into Nicole's home in Spanish Fork near Provo, and he bought a blue Mustang from Val Conlon, a used car salesman. The car was a dud, and Gary spotted a white Ford pickup in the lot that he wanted to have instead, even though he still owed money on the Mustang. Val Conlon said that he couldn't sell him the truck without a cosigner since it was expensive, and this pissed Gary off. He wanted that truck, and he decided to get the money the only way he knew how. He managed to amass a collection of nine guns, which he showed to Nicole, even giving one to her. A few days later, frightened by what she knew of Gary was capable of, Nicole took her children and left, moving into an apartment five miles away. Gary was furious and took to the streets looking for Nicole. He even told Brenda that if she was truly trying to leave him, he just might kill her. In total, Gary and Nicole had only been together for eight weeks. On July 19, 1976, Gary returned to Val Conlon and convinced him to let Gary purchase the pickup truck on the condition that he pay it off within a few weeks. Gary drove the truck to Nicole's mother's house, looking for her, but only found her younger sister, 18-year-old April. Still angry at Nicole, he agreed to take her little sister out for a drive. April had a crush on Gary, and she requested that he keep her out all night. At 10.30 p.m., Gary parked the car on the side of the road and told April that he needed to make a phone call. He walked to the Sinclair service station around the corner. The attendant on duty was 24-year-old Max Jensen. Max had just finished his first year of law school at Brigham Young University, and he began working at the service station in June to support his wife, Colleen, and provide for their new infant daughter, Monica. Max and Colleen were devout Mormons who dreamed of having a farm together. When Gary approached Max, he drew his 22 caliber Browning automatic and demanded that he empty his pockets. Max complied, just as he complied when Gary ordered him to go into the bathroom and lay on the floor with his arms under his body. Gary then shot him twice in the head at close range, telling him, this one is for me, before shooting him the first time, and the second, he said, was for Nicole. He left the station without even bothering to take cash that was sitting in the open on the counter. Max's body was discovered by customers a half an hour later at 11 p.m. Gary took April to a screening of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but they only remained in the theater for a few minutes. Gary got the pair of room at the Holiday Inn for the night, and April later told a relative that Gary smacked her around. Gary drove her home the following morning. Although she claimed to have not known the murder took place, Gary did at least return to the car with blood on his clothes. Just four days after spending the night with Gary, April was committed to the Timpanogos Community Mental Health Center. Shortly after dropping April off at home, Gary began having issues with his truck. He dropped it off at a service station a few blocks from his Uncle Vern's house. The man who ran the station, Norman Fulmer, let Gary know that the repair would take about 20 minutes. Gary began walking towards his uncle's home, but when he spotted the city center motel next door, he was struck with an idea. You guessed it, his idea was to rob the motel. Gary entered the lobby and approached 26-year-old Benny Bushnell and demanded the cash box, ordering Benny to the floor. Benny and his wife of three years, Deborah Jean, lived in the motel and managed it together. They had a nine-month-old Benjamin, and Deborah was pregnant with a second child. From the motel office, she heard a sound, quote, like a balloon bursting. 
At first, she thought that there were some children playing in the lobby. When she opened the door, she found her husband fatally shot in the head. She also caught a glimpse of Gary running away with the cash box under his arm. Gary took the cash from the cash box and hid the box under some bushes. He walked a little further down the street and decided to stash his gun in the bushes as well. But as he placed it handle first into the brush, something caught on the trigger and the gun went off. His hand was over the muzzle and the bullet tore through the flesh between his thumb and palm. Gary returned to the service station to retrieve his truck from Norman, who noticed the bloody wound and heard on the police scanner about the robbery a few blocks away. Putting two and two together, he called the cops as soon as Gary left and gave them his license plate number. His uncle Vern also learned about the robbery and murder next door and immediately suspected that his nephew was involved. He had his wife call Brenda and tell her that Gary had murdered Benny Bushnell next door. Just minutes later, Gary called Brenda and told her that he was injured and needed drugs and bandages. She asked for his address, and as soon as he hung up, she called the police to turn him in. After waiting a short while, Gary began to suspect that Brenda was not coming. He left, driving through a police roadblock. It took just a moment for them to realize that he was their man, and police chased him down, finally getting him to stop outside of Nicole's house. Gary surrendered without a fight, requesting that they be conscientious of his injured hand as they took him into custody. Nicole was at her mother's house and witnessed the arrest take place. When she found out that he committed two murders... She couldn't help but feel that he had killed those men to keep from killing her. This renewed her passion for him, and she had to be physically restrained from rushing to his side. What's what's uh, sexier than feeling like a guy killed two people for you? Uh, Everything. Everything (laughs) is sexier than that. That is not sexy. Take note, everyone. Take note, please. The next day when Gary asked Brenda why she had turned him in, she reportedly told him, quote, You commit a murder Monday and commit a murder Tuesday. I wasn't waiting for Wednesday to roll around. Gary was first taken to the hospital to treat his hand, and he agreed to speak with Officer Gerald Nielsen. At first, he denied everything and even claimed that he had stumbled upon the robbery in progress at the motel, and that was how he got shot in the hand. But, of course, his story did not hold up in the slightest. Eventually, he admitted that he killed the two men, but said that he didn't know the reason and that if he hadn't been caught, he likely would have kept on killing. Gary's preliminary hearing was on August 3rd, And it was the first time that prosecutor Noel Wooten had met Gary Gilmore. He said that he was struck by Gary's intelligence and by the untapped potential in him, potential that would now never be tapped. To Wooten, Gary would come to represent how utterly ill-equipped the prison system was at rehabilitating offenders. Gary was tried only for the murder of Bushnell, since there was much more proof in that case, including eyewitnesses that placed him at the scene. He had also confessed both to the police and to his cousin Brenda. Uh, And as a side note here, I guess Brenda was called in during the preliminary hearing and Gary thought that she was there to speak on his behalf to defend him and apparently was very angry that she was there as a a witness for the prosecution. Oh, interesting. So it was, uh, I think he, he felt pretty betrayed, although he did kind of forgive her before the end. So Noel Wooten decided to pursue the death penalty for Gary as he felt that there was little hope for his rehabilitation and he also felt that he would pose a danger uh, not only if he were ever released but even you know pose a danger in prison to his fellow prison inmates because he had a very long history of you know becoming physically violent with with fellow inmates. In truth, though, Noel felt that even if he were able to get the death sentence for Gary, there wasn't much of a chance of it being carried out. Uh, after all, Utah had not put a person to death in 16 years, and the death penalty had only just been reinstated by the Supreme Court. 
In the 1972 case of Furman versus Georgia, the Supreme Court ruled that the death penalty was cruel and unusual punishment. All prisoners on death row had their sentences commuted to life in prison. On July 2nd, 1976, 17 days before Gary committed his first murder, the Supreme Court reversed its decision, ending the moratorium on the death penalty. In order to be convicted, however, the capital crime needed to have one of 10 aggravating factors including that the capital crime was committed for the purpose of gaining some kind of monetary value and also that the defendant has a history of committing serious felonies. So you could see where, you know, Gary's crime would fit into those categories. Well, Gary's trial began on October 5th and lasted just two days. Gary's lawyers, Michael Esplin and Craig Snyder, called no witnesses, a decision which Gary protested. Their strategy was to argue that the gun had gone off accidentally during the robbery, just as Gary had accidentally shot himself, and thus he should be charged with second-degree murder instead. On the second day of the trial, Gary asked the judge if he could address the court. He wanted to plead insanity as he felt like he was going through a dissociative episode when he committed the murders. Instead, his lawyers told the court that they consulted four psychiatrists who all said that they felt Gary was in control of his facilities and could tell right from wrong, although he did have a personality disorder. Faced with this, Gary withdrew his request. The trial ended on October 7th, and it took the jury just one hour and 20 minutes to find Gary guilty of first-degree murder. The sentencing took place that afternoon, and many of Gary's own family members refused to testify on his behalf. When he was finally given a chance to address the courtroom, all Gary said was, quote, I am finally glad to see that the jury is looking at me. He was sentenced to death unanimously, and given a choice between execution by hanging or by a firing squad, he chose the firing squad. The execution date was set for November 15th. From the time of his capture, Gary and Nicole had been writing to each other nearly every day, and nearly every day Nicole also hitchhiked 20 miles to visit him in prison. A few days after being sentenced to death, he wrote to her, quote, The bravest people are those who have overcome the greatest amounts of fear. I just hate fear. I think that fear is a sort of sin in a way. I may shortly, next month, be faced with more fear than I have ever known before. I can't say what I will feel when and if that time comes. I sort of feel all my life has been leading to this. He also wrote to Nicole about his dissatisfaction with his lawyers. Quote, It is a fact that I was on trial for my life and my lawyers simply did not defend me. It's true that they didn't have a hell of a lot to work with, but they were never curious either. They never really tried to look beneath the surface. They assume that like everybody else who gets a death sentence, I will allow them to keep me alive with appeals. I mean, they simply don't know a lot of things. Those two puppets, Snyder and Esplin, fuck them. I suppose they got paid pretty good. They earned it. The state paid them, and they did what they're supposed to do for the state. So Snyder and Esplin were already planning to appeal, you know, as as Gary had predicted. And I think that you know, that kind of situation and cycle is still you know, present in modern day. You know, Gary informed them that he intended to accept the execution date of November 15th. So as a reminder, this is a little more than a month after his trial ended, November 15th. Uh, so he fired the two of them and he hired California-based lawyer Dennis Boaz, who had written to him in support of his decision to reject appeals and accept his sentence. Boaz had agreed to exchange his services for an exclusive interview with Gary, as Gary had become a bit of a folk hero for his quest to be executed. Uh, however, when Boaz began to talk about Gary to the media, Gary fired him too. Whoops. Yep. It ended up being Gary himself who argued his case to the justices of the Utah Supreme Court. 
um, his case being his desire to be executed as quickly as possible. Of his sentence, he said, quote, it's been sanctioned by the courts and I accept that. The justices voted four to one in his favor and he requested that his last meal be a six pack of beer. You know, still his execution date of November 15th came and went simply because the state was unable to get everything prepared in so short a time period. No one had been executed in modern times without years and years of appeals. Uh, furthermore, his previous two lawyers, despite being fired, had decided to uh, file an appeal anyway with the support of his mother, as well as groups which protested the death penalty, including the ACLU and the NAACP. And they were working actively to you know, stop the execution altogether. They felt that by being the first person executed since the Furman decision in 1972, you know, the execution of Gary Gilmore would... Uh, sort of opened the floodgates. So they were hoping to basically get it ruled unconstitutional again, you know, for good. Yeah, yeah. Um, they also did not want to set a very dangerous precedent, which would be, you know, executions being carried out without going through the appeals process. So you know, I think we've seen cases where, you know, thanks to these years of appeals pushing off the execution, you know, we get new DNA evidence that proves that, you know, people are actually innocent. Oh, totally. So it's, it's actually a pretty important part of the process, even though it you know, might seem a little ridiculous to have people on death row for such a long time. So anxious to get off death row in any way he could, Gary hatched a plan with Nicole. By November, she had collected about 50 barbiturates from doctors outside of the prison, and she smuggled Gary half of them. At midnight, they were supposed to take the pills together to commit suicide. Instead, Nicole took them at midnight while Gary waited until the morning when he knew he would be found. Uh, Nicole also survived, though, uh, but she did go into a temporary coma. She was finally committed to a mental hospital after the suicide attempt. For days while she was in the hospital, Gary tried sending her yellow roses, but the staff refused to give them to her. Uh, Gary and Nicole were cut off and they never communicated with each other again. This thing is the thing that pisses me off the most. I mean, this is the person that he's supposed to kind of love more than anyone. And then he completely betrays them. I mean, I think he had his kind of weird reasons and strategy. I think he wanted them to be together and he wanted to make sure of that. Thank God she didn't die. She is like two really young children you know she's a mother but obviously gary is a very selfish person gary's execution date was now set for december 6th but after going on a hunger strike to protest being cut off from nicole gary's mother bessie stepped in requesting a stay of execution based on the hunger strike altering his perceptions the temporary stay was issued by the supreme court on december the 3rd over the protests of gary and his new lawyer robert spanger spanger even argued that because gary had not been executed within 60 days of sentencing a writ of habeas corpus should be issued against the prison warden essentially because gary was still alive spanger argued that he was being unlawfully imprisoned on december 6th gary published an open letter to his mother in it he wrote quote Please, Mom, accept the fact that I don't disagree with the law and the sentence that has been imposed upon me, and I wish to be dead. We all die, and it ain't no big deal. Sometimes it's right and proper. He also pleaded with her to disassociate herself with the organizations that turned his case into a lightning rod for the death penalty debate, saying that they didn't care about him or her and that they were just using her to gain sympathy. By this point, Gary Gilmore and his quest to be executed were so ingrained in the media and popular culture that Saturday Night Live even, re even referenced it in multiple skits. 
One which aired on December the 16th featured the casting in a Christmas-themed medley called Let's Kill Gary Gilmore for Christmas, where they sung to the tune of Winter Wonderland. You better actually sing this, David. In the meadow we can build a snowman, one with Gary Gilmore inside. We'll ask him, are you dead yet? He'll say no, man. But we'll wait out the frostbite till he dies. That was perfect. That was beautiful. Ah, thank you. Yeah. Isn't that ridiculous? So yeah. it, it's on YouTube if you look up like Gary Gilmore Christmas, but the sound quality is so bad, oh, but it's still yeah. just kind of incredible. I mean, this, the news was everywhere. My dad remembers this, you know, this was in Utah. My dad grew up on the East coast and he remembers it being in the news, this Gary Gilmore case. Well, finally in mid-December, the state was overturned and a new execution date was set for 8 a.m. on January 17th, 1977. His family made one last attempt to prevent him from going through with the execution, sending his younger brother Michael to meet with him. They sat and talked for a while, and Michael was finally convinced that Gary knew what he was doing and that he truly wished to be executed. When he left, Gary kissed him goodbye and told him, See you in the darkness. The night before his execution, he was visited by multiple relatives who all reported that he was in good spirits. His uncle Vern even snuck him some whiskey and also Johnny Cash called and sang him a song. That's amazing. Yes. The notoriety of Gary's case had gotten him in touch with Cash, who was his favorite singer. And 10 days before the execution, Cash even sent him an autographed copy of his biography, Man in Black. Wow. You know, the last thing that Gary did was he recorded a tape for Nicole. And on that tape, he asked her to kill herself for him. Oh, geez. Yeah. In case you were feeling a little too much sympathy for him. The next morning, Gary was marched to the execution site, a disused tannery in the Utah State Prison. Overnight, a federal court judge in Salt Lake City had ordered a stay of execution, but he was overturned by the 10th Circuit Court. And finally, at 7.30, the Supreme Court reported its decision to allow the execution to proceed. Gary Gilmore would be the first person executed since the decision to reinstate the death penalty. And he would also be the first person executed in the United States in 10 years. The firing squad consisted of five people behind a wall, each pointing their guns through a small square hole. One of the five was given a gun with a blank so that each man could think that there was a chance that they did not participate in the killing. Gary was strapped to a chair and a black corduroy hood was placed over his head and a paper target was also pinned to his heart. When asked for his last words, Gary said that they were, let's do it. But his true last words whispered to the priest, Father Mearsman, as he was performing his last rites, were, quote, there will always be a Mearsman. William Greeter, writing for the Washington Post, reported on the execution, quote, Gilmore, it was reported by an eyewitness, did nothing untoward at the moment of his death. He did not quiver with fear. He did not shrink from the black corduroy hood placed over his head and shoulders, did not struggle or cry out at the last moment. His head turned slightly when he was shot. His body shrugged a trifle. That's all. In the same article, he decried the media for their coverage of Gilmore in the lead-up to his execution, saying that they made Gilmore into a mythical creature larger than his real self, perhaps made him even enviable to others with freakish wishes for self-destruction. According to Gary's wishes, some of his organs, including his corneas, were donated for transplants. His body was then cremated and his ashes spread from a plane flying over Spanish Fork where he had lived so briefly with Nicole. Gary Gilmore was the only person executed in the United States in 1977. Since then, 1,468 people have been executed. There are currently more than 2,800 inmates on death row. 
On average, the time it takes these inmates to actually be executed is 15 years. So I have actually quite a few discussion points about this case, which, I mean, I just found it absolutely fascinating. So I've not actually read the book, The Executioner's Song. The first time I heard about it was actually reading about the movie. Um, and I, I am definitely going to get my hands on a copy of it, especially with my spiffy new Kindle. Yeah. Because um, I just, since reading about it, I just can't stop thinking about this case. So I guess the first question I want to ask you to... Uh, to borrow the terminology of the awesome local podcast we all know and love, uh, was it nature or was it narcissism? So what is the deal with Gary Gilmore? Yeah, what is the deal with him? I mean, like uh, his mom thought that she had brought a demon into the world and that it had kind of uh, staked its place uh, with his him as its home, right? Yeah, and I mean, I think building off of that, he seemed to believe from a, a very young age that you know he was he was destined to die violently. You know, it's uh, what is it a self fulfilling prophecy? Yeah, um, that had to have sculpted um, his just attitudes on life and his his personality growing up. I just can't help but think that, you know, although he clearly has some, you know, sociopathic or psychopathic tendencies, you know, if he had grown up in a loving upper middle class home, maybe he would have been a CEO. I've, I've heard that there are some people with psychopathic tendencies in that line of work. Uh, he was actually a very talented artist. He was very intelligent. I think that you know, that's maybe even clearer just from some of our quotes from him, from you know, his letters and his plea to the court. You know, he's quite articulate considering yeah. he dropped out of school when he was 14. I'm going to go with like nature. I'm going to I'm going to go with nature, too. I think that it was it was a product of his home life. I mean, he he himself talks extensively about you know how he thinks his life would have been different if he hadn't spent so much time in prison, which for God's sake, stop committing armed robbery. Then, <laughs> yeah. you know, he ended up spending you know, in the end half of his life behind bars you know starting from the very young age he was arrested for the first time at 14 so you know that 14 is almost half of his life there oh yeah um it's a sad case because it feels so preventable but also he killed two people you know i think as sad as i might be for him you know reading so much about his life you know i'm sadder for the people he brutally murdered you know leaving behind their wives and very young children it's, yeah it's yeah. terrible totally terrible. and i think that that gets lost a lot in his story i think you know especially with kind of how famous he got towards the end you know fielding phone calls from johnny cash in prison like yeah you know I hope that Johnny Cash also called the two widows that Gary Gilmore created rather than just living out his weird murder fantasy about shooting a man in Reno. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Actually, I was just um, reading the comments on, uh, I think it was a trailer for this movie or something, and someone, I did the, the whole read the comments on a YouTube uh, video. Why did you read the comments on a YouTube video? I, know, I was just like, someone was complaining about, oh, why does everyone know Gary Gilmore's uh, name, but we don't know... Benny Bushnell and Max Jensen's name. It's like, well... It's the way I think a lot of the movies that we cover and a lot of our popular culture, it is very focused on the killer because, you know, it's it's an interesting story you think about you know why did this person do this and i think you know think about why did this victim die well it was completely random yeah and it sucks so much but it's true that it was just you know whoever was on duty that night at the gas station would have been killed well and i think we can learn a lot from the infamy of the the murderers right like i think that we've we've probably learned a ton about personality from each of these like famous killers yeah well i mean you've seen mindhunter it's a whole field now. 
Um, yeah. But it's kind of going along that line. The other thing I was thinking about was what it was that made this case, you know, to be such a big deal in the news. And I think that, you know, part of it is that this was, you know, the first death penalty case after it was reinstated. And it's like, what are the chances that the very first death penalty case, rather than just being the usual person's committed to death, files appeals, files appeals, you know, 15 years later, maybe they're finally put down. But it's like the very first case. And it's this person who's like, oh, I'd like I'd like to die now, please. It's just amazing to think that the death penalty did essentially not exist at this time, like back well, in the for, 70s for a for good four like, years. five year, for four four years, years, right? Yeah. yeah. And like you said, I do think mm-hmm. it's like he's like, I'll raise my hand. Yes, I I will. I will die. I will be. I don't know any other case that played out like this. It almost feels less like a person being executed and more like a government assisted suicide. Yeah. You know, he just wanted to die as soon as possible. I think he was very vocal about his criticism of the justice system, feeling like his time in prison, you know, didn't prepare him for the outside world and it became just a cycle for him. And nothing's changed. No. Nothing about that has has changed which is kind of depressing to think about but you know something at that time i think really resonated in the popular culture you know compounded by the fact that this was the first execution since that brief moratorium i mean it's so this was 1977 he was the only person executed i think there were two executions in 1979 and it's been you know it kind of steadily increased although i think the peak was like 1999 there were 98 people executed wow in a year guess where most of those people were where were they texas of course they were texas oh sorry texas, texas. has executed so many more people than any other state i think in total since gary gilmore utah has only executed seven people you know why it's texas right because you don't mess with Texas. I like that. Also, interestingly, the average time spent on death row in Texas, I think, is 10 years. So it's actually a shorter time on death row than any other state. They really like their executions, I guess. Well, I don't like the death penalty. We've talked about this before. I think we have talked about this before. Yeah, I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure. It's um, and I guess one last point I wanted to, although I don't know if you want to talk about this now or during the movie, but um, what do you think of the comparison of this film slash story to the film slash story of in cold blood because the source material actually uh kind of were similar in that they were both these you know call them non-fiction novels i also saw them termed faction which is like fiction but full of facts which is a little bit silly uh but do you have any any thoughts on that it's it's a really good uh comparison they 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 have a lot of parallels then they're both award-winning books that are considered greats right so this won a pulitzer prize and i do believe in cold blood won truman capote quite a few awards at the time as well i think the only thing that maybe hinders this a bit is the fact that it was made uh in a two-part tv movie I think like the prestige behind that adaptation might not have a uh, uh, be as grandiose. Yeah, they do have a lot of parallels. I think the um, you know the kind of working class, kind of lower socioeconomic class of the perpetrator is interesting. I mean, they're you know it's kind of I think the biggest comparison between the two is because they're both you know although they're presented as nonfiction, they're essentially novelizations of what happened. Yeah, but. I think what's interesting about In Cold Blood versus The Executioner's Song is that um, in In Cold Blood, Truman Capote was actually, you know, he sort of interjected himself into the story. So like he you know, spoke 
to the people involved. You know, he was very much a part of it, you know, by by the end. Whereas for um, the Executioner song, I mean, Norman Mailer wasn't even on board until, you know, after Gary Gilmore was was executed. You know, the, I mean, that window of time was very small. Uh, you know, it was what, October to January. Yeah. So, you know, he wrote a lot about Gary Gilmore, but his insight into Gary Gilmore was through the writings that Gary left behind and speaking with, you know, his relatives versus actually being able to to talk with him. So I think that that, you know, that separation might actually make him be able to be a little bit more objective in a way, because I know that you know, one thing you hear about with Truman Capote is that he maybe got a little bit too involved to oh, get my yeah. drift. Yeah. Um, but, you know, on the other side, it meant that, you know, he didn't get that firsthand account of of all of this, like, a, you know, of, of Gary's mindset. So I don't know. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought up the, the comparison in, in Cold Blood. It's a, it's a good one. All right. I have one last thing on my list, which is, David, you've just been sentenced to death. Yes. No, not yes. I mean, all right. You better appeal <laughs> that. You have to appeal. Appeal. <laughs> but anyway, uh, firing squad versus hanging. Electric chair. Oh wait. <laughs> okay. All right. We <laughs> we had this discussion uh, offline. We did have this discussion offline. And My David picked electric chair. I picked lethal injection. But we're not talking about either of those. I know the re- okay. Well, the only reason I picked electric chair was because there's a chance I could come back as some sort of like uh, electrical force or is, I don't know what. Because yeah, David wants to be a ghost. Shocker. He comes back. Uh, there's an episode of Tales from the Crypt where they come back. House 3, the serial murderer comes back. It seems like a very powerful method for um, uh, life beyond death in supernatural form. So that's why I said the extra chair. Okay, long story short, firing squad versus hanging. Oh, firing squad, do not hang me. I do not want to be hanging there forever. I feel like if I were... With this case, like Gary Gilmore, five people, he was probably shot at least four times. They were hopefully all good shots. He was actually, actually all four bullets hit their mark because one of them was a blank. Okay. But it still took him like 20 seconds to die after he was shot. Yeah. I mean, that would probably be pretty painful, but um, I'm going to have to go with firing squad, Chelsea. How about you? I feel like if there was a guarantee that it would, you know, go smoothly, I would do hanging because it's like kind of one and done. Um, I think I would still go hanging. I really hate guns. Don't you like poop your pants if you get hung? That's yeah, fine. I don't have to clean it up. <laughs> All right. All right. All right. So before we move on to the movie portion, I do want to list my references. The main one was Gary Gilmore Death Wish by Catherine Ramsland. Uh, Shot in the Heart, which is actually a book about the case written by uh, Michael Gilmore. So Gary Gilmore's brother actually went on to have, he's still alive. He has a a really good career as a writer. Also the Executioner song uh, by Norman Mailer. And then there are a few uh, kind of contemporary sources. One is an article, eight women caught in Gary Gilmore's tangled web await his execution. This is actually published on the day of his execution. It's written by Cheryl McCall. And the other source is Crime Archives net and this website has a ton of letters that were sent between Nicole and Gary that are are super interesting a little explicit Ooh. some kind of sweet and romantic uh, but uh but yeah that's it we are going to dive into the film adaptation well TV movie adaptation of Gary Gilmore's crimes and subsequent executions here in just a second so sit tight we'll be right back 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It is one of the most unforgettable stories in American history. On the morning of January 17, 1977, convicted murderer Gary Gilmore was sentenced to be shot to death. Having been found guilty of the crime of criminal homicide, Murder in the first For Gary, week. it was the end of a journey which began the day he got out of jail. Mama! Shake it! You can't have it all in five minutes, Gary. You have to earn it, bit by bit. You have to make it the right good stuff in you. <laughs> Don't you dare mess up. For a time, it even seemed it might work. Both for Gary Gilmore and Nicole Baker, the new girl in his life. I don't want to just jump in bed with you. I want to make love to you. And if you I feel like I'm in the right place for the first time. <laughs> you come in here with this welfare witch who's lived on the government forever. I love her. All right, Gary. While two women fought for his love, Gary fought his own anger. You want to fight? Get out back. <laughs> Gary's dangerous. He needs help. Jimmy, stop, Jim! I'll never hit you again, sweetie. I'm sorry. <laughs> you want to die? You're going to kill us all! Pull over! And after the anger came the violence. I gave Nicole this real sweet little over under Derringer to protect herself. Too bad, partner. And after the violence came the killings. This one's for me. What kind of an idiot would do that? This one's for Nicole. Gary did it. Gary, you commit a murder on Monday. You commit a murder on Tuesday. I wasn't about to wait till Wednesday rolled around. And the events that led to the execution of the century. What would you say if I told you I deserve to die? I don't want to ask myself whether your death will be more profitable to me than your life. I prefer to be shot. Gary! Gary Gilmore, I love you! Gary Gilmore. I love you. His crimes were unforgivable. His story is unforgettable. Who's going to play me in the movie? Tommy Lee Jones plays Gary Gilmore, The Executioner's Song, based on the number one bestseller by Norman Mailer. Hey, look at that. We're back. The Executioner's Song is based on the 1979 Pulitzer Prize winning novel by Norman Mailer. This true story follows the last nine months of convicted murderer Gary Gilmore's life, who you just heard all about. Experience one of the most compelling news stories of the 20th century when he demands the death penalty. Rather than spend his life in jail, Gilmore's execution marked the resumption of the death penalty in the United States and became a historic case that is still relevant today. Which I guess we really just spent the last hour talking all about that exact thing. I guess that kind of shows that maybe this was uh, maybe a fairly straightforward portrayal of uh, this like nine month period of time in Gary Gilmore's life as played by Tommy Lee Jones. It's been a little while since we've had a movie this true to the case. I guess Bonnie and Clyde was sort of true-ish. 
Tradition. They took a little bit more liberties than this movie did, though. Yeah. Um, and as a TV movie, I guess um, the desire to be a lot more literary was uh, was pretty great there. So this made-for-TV movie, it actually aired over two nights, and it was on NBC. It aired on November 28th and 29th of 1982. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that we ended up watching the director's cut, which is 135 minutes. However, there is a 188 eight minute cut which contains everything that was aired on tv plus some maybe other stuff so the director's cut is actually shorter than what aired on tv that yeah. seems uh, counterintuitive when you I think know. of director's cuts yeah yeah um there was also a 97 minute theatrical cut that was distributed in europe i cannot imagine them cutting this movie down to 97 minutes i feel like there wasn't that much that seemed kind of unnecessary it's such a yeah big story Oh, totally. I know. Yeah, I was really surprised. And I couldn't find any comparisons of what is available in the various cuts. One of the things I did see was there's, um, it looked like there was a version online on like YouTube that was three and a half hours long. And I was just curious when I was doing my research to see if maybe it had like the vintage commercials intact, which is why it was so long. And like skimming through it, there there weren't any. Did you catch anything that was just in the that version and not in the version that we watched? It seemed or? through scrubbing through it, there, there may have been some stuff, yeah, that I didn't recognize that we had watched. But I really liked the, um, the director's cut that we saw um it feels like a feature film it's like two hours and 15 minutes so yeah a, a long feature film but pretty tight yeah like there's there's a few moments where it dragged but it did not feel like it was as long as it was which was you know more than two hours yeah um i i feel the same way um so this was directed by lawrence schiller and he has an interesting career but something that was <laughs> really interesting and i found this on lawrence schiller's website i'm just going to quote from the website it says perhaps nothing in schiller's career proved more remarkable than his collaboration with norman mailer a friendship unique in american literary history for nearly 35 years the two worked closely together on books including maryland from 1973 the faith of graffiti in 19 1974, Oswald's Tale in 1995, Into the Mirror in 2002, and The Executioner's Song in 1979, the book version, for which Mailer won the Pulitzer Prize. Schiller, who did much of the legwork, interviews, and research for Executioner's Song, outmaneuvered numerous other reporters to gain exclusive access to the book's subject, Gary Gilmore, and went on to produce and direct the award-winning television miniseries based upon it, starring Tommy Lee Jones. Is now the time to talk about him actually being in the movie? Because I love that part in the movie. I yeah, thought it was so yeah, clever. Yeah, he is in the movie. So, but the character is called, was it Larry Samuels? So yeah. this, the same initials, but yeah. the way he petitions Gary's uncle for for the rights, I guess it was such a popular case at the time that he was going up against a lot of other people and bigger people and people that were promising more money. But you know, his advantage was that he actually traveled there and was talking to him in person and you know, that that got him the rights it was really yeah. really cool yeah i thought that was pretty amazing <laughs> one of the other things i'm um, talking about true crime is that uh, lawrence schiller also was able to embed himself with the dream team and that's the defense attorneys that defended oj simpson what yeah <laughs> what <laughs> yeah he wrote uh well he co-wrote with author james wilworth the new york times bestseller american tragedy in 1996 that is so sneaky i i kind 
kind of love him. Yeah. Well, you know why else you're going to love him? He's from Long Branch, New Jersey. Uh, it's really close to where I grew up. Yeah. So speaking of teaming up with writers, and we already mentioned Norman Mailer, who wrote the screenplay and the book. He was an American novelist. Also, he was a journalist and an essayist, a playwright, a filmmaker. He's listed as being an actor, which I think is interesting, but also for his political activism. His novel, The Naked and the Dead from 1948 was the first publication that made him renowned. And um, of course, you know, most most well known for the Executioner's Song due to that Pulitzer Prize for fiction. He won another Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction, and that was for Armies of the Night. Um, and it also won a National Book Award. I was really surprised to see that he wrote the screenplay for the movie. I feel like I uh, I kind of boxed myself in with just you know researching the true crimes. So, like I knew Norman Miller from his role in you know writing about Gary Gilmore, and then when it came up in the credits, screenplay by Norman Miller, I was like, what? The, there are several original songs by country artist Waylon Jennings, and he was a singer-songwriter and guitarist who had over 60 albums with 16 number one country singles, and his career spanned five decades. That's, I thought that was pretty impressive. Also, some interesting things about uh, about the TV movie. It won two Emmy Awards. Tommy Lee Jones won for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Limited Series or a Special. It also won Outstanding Film Sound Editing for a Limited Series or Special, which I thought that was kind of unique. There are some moments that kind of stand out to me. The, you know, I mean, obviously the last scene with the execution. Although I don't know if that was a result of like really good just film editing or the sound editing, but the way the like piercing bullet sounds. Yeah. It's a little... Yep. Um, but I'm so glad Tommy Lee Jones won because I thought he was great. It is a great performance. Uh, yeah, Tommy Lee Jones is, is awesome in this. I, I love him. There is one tagline, Chelsea, that is the story of two people who fell in love and kept on falling. I like that tagline a lot. And I think that it really encompasses the emphasis that, you know, this unfold a movie or miniseries that it, it placed on his relationship with Nicole. My only maybe issue is that I guess maybe my only issue with that is that it almost at least to me makes it seem like she's somehow involved or complicit. Like I could see that tagline being for Bonnie and Clyde or natural born killers. Yeah. Which is, um, you know, couples who went on crime sprees together versus this, where it's entirely Gary Gilmore. Nicole had nothing to do with his crimes. She had no involvement. So, but I like it as a tagline. I think that it's pithy and uh, the correct length. And I think that it, it does, you know, match the, the theme of the romance. That is such a big part of this movie. It really is, yeah. And, um, you know, it does make me think about sort of it capturing that point in time of, of Gary Gilmore's relationship with Nicole Baker and how His brief. eight-week relationship. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah, no kidding. We already gave away the star. I mean, how can you not? It's Tommy Lee Jones playing Gary Mark Gilmore. Favorite Tommy Lee Jones movie. Go. The Fugitive. I'm Men in Black. Oh, yeah. I think I like Men in Black more than The Fugitive. I love The Fugitive, too. When I think of Tommy Lee Jones, I think of, what's his name, Lieutenant Gerard or whatever. Yeah. I think of Men in Black. I th Men in Black might have been the first thing I actually saw him in. He's so good in that. Because I watched Fugitive like when I was already adult-ish. Yeah. Adult-adjacent. <laughs> the one movie that I, I saw like maybe two years ago that I don't know if I had seen a lot of young era Tommy Lee Jones, but it was uh, Rolling Thunder, and I thought that was really good. That's like a good revenge flick. 
was written by the same person who wrote and directed Autofocus. Paul Schrader. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the taxi driver writer. Check out our episode on Autofocus. Yes. Slash Bob Crane with special guest appearance by the uh, Off the Cuffs boys. Yeah, that was a fun one. That was such a fun one. Yep, totally. Uh, we have Christine Lottie as Brenda Nicole. You know, I was I was looking up her credit list. She has a ton of television credits. I mean, she was in several years, several seasons of Chicago Hope. She did a ton of the Hawaii 5.0 reboot, which I guess is, is it still in there? I don't know. I don't watch the show. Um, she's also on Law and Order Special Victims Unit. I like it intrinsically, yeah. even though I've only seen bits and pieces of it. I think my extended Law and Order viewing was like, at the dentist. Is they all the same theme? Is it all boom boom boop 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 boom? Yes, that is Law and Order. Boop, 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 Although boom. I don't know if they all do. I I haven't seen anything other than SVU. Oh. Is, are there other ones? Is it like uh, Those, CSI? Yeah. Or Summer in Miami? I think I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. TV's weird for me, so. Uh, she's in the blacklist to uh, that James Spader show. All right. And then playing Nicole Baker is Rosanna Arquette. She's, she's been in a lot, but uh, she's, she was in Pulp Fiction. She was in uh, David Cronenberg's Crash. Not to be confused with the Crash that won the Oscar Best Picture instead of Brokeback Mountain, uh, which was robbed. Yeah. <laughs> it was robbed. I was very angry about that. That was a robbery for sure. Absolutely. Because um, that, that Crash is terrible. I really did not like that movie. No, it's not a good movie. Sorry, uh, Crash, long-time listener. <laughs> I gotta stop making that joke. It's gonna get tired. I will never get tired of that joke. Just think of me as your audience. Okay. We have Eli Wallach as Uncle Vern in this movie. He plays Tuco in uh, Sergio Leone's The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. With and Clint this Eastwood. is the ugly one? Yes. <laughs> According to your ugly. notes, I've not seen that movie, so. Uh, we should watch it sometime. Which one? Wait, is Clint Eastwood the bad? He's the good, isn't he? Yes. Uh, the other cast member of, of choice, just because there's a lot of people in this movie, uh, Jenny Wright plays April Baker, who is Nicole's sister, which we talk about um, having gone for the ride with Gary the night uh, of his first murder yes and she's i mean she's barely in it she's barely in it but we had just watched i madman by the director of the gate and the gate 2 and she's the lead in i madman so i thought that was pretty cool yeah that's behind the scenes factoids why don't we dive into a couple thoughts on the film i wanted to ask you after having done all the research on this case and on gary gilmore and then having just watched the movie how do you feel that has impacted your perspective on the film were there things missing from the adaptation that you really wanted to see or did they do a good job of kind of checking all the the boxes on what you would want from an adaptation of um, this case I think they did a very good job I was quite pleased I think that it's a difficult kind of line to walk down where it's you know, you, you want to make him be sympathetic but you don't like you're not really rooting for him you know you just kind of maybe understand his struggles and I think that this movie did did a very good job i think a better job than a lot of you know maybe bigger budget you know made for what is it like the golden screen versus the silver screen yeah. you know made for not tv movies um you know I, I think that they did a very good job and it, it probably helps that you know the the screenplay was written by by norman Mailer, who was 
you know, very kind of closely linked to the the story. So I think it did do a good job. You know, you see him released from prison and he's he's kind of almost jubilant and childlike and like kind of full of hope for the future. And I think that you can see that with Gary Gilmore in real life, maybe thinking of, you know, his release into Provo being a second chance and then, you know, realizing pretty quickly that, you know, he's just not cut out for, you know, the living on kind of the straight and narrow we'll say. And I think that, you know, they do a good job showing this this romance with Nicole, you know, seeming almost guided by external forces. The, their meeting in the movie is you know, very similar to the true story where, you know, he sees her and he says, you know, I know you. And they have this really intense initial connection that burns bright and then kind of fizzles out as he is going down this downward spiral and becoming really abusive and then ultimately after she leaves committing these murders. Uh, One thing that I think I personally would have liked... See, I don't want to say that, you know, the movie would have benefited from it. So I think that I'll frame this as if I were making this movie, I would have maybe put a little bit more emphasis on the historical context. I don't think they talk much about the fact that this was the first execution after, you know, the Supreme Court overturned that decision, that 1972 decision. There's like one throwaway line about, you know, it, whatever, opening the floodgates to more executions. But without that historical context, I don't think it really made much sense i mean i had the historical context because i had finished my research already yeah yeah um but I think that that part of the story is so interesting to me. Everything that happens after he commits the murders, because that's where you get into the position of his case in the overall debate about the the death penalty and kind of, you know, how his position on being executed, the fact that he wanted it done so quickly, the fact that he didn't want appeals, you know, how that fit into the debate and how that ultimately led to him becoming, you know, so famous and getting these these book deals before he was even executed. Uh, it's, you know, to, to me, that's very interesting. I feel like the movie spends a lot of time. It's like 45 minutes, I think, in the movie is after he's arrested. And I feel like that time could have been spent better you know kind of placing everything in that that time period but yeah i wonder if like a non-linear timeline would have worked they could have bookended it with him in prison and then his his sort of hot relationship with nicole and his time spent post prison oh that would have been interesting so kind of starting it after he was arrested and then having stuff be like a flashback yeah i like it tell me more I just think that would have been interesting in that um, rather than sort of a co- the cold open that we get in the film, we would have that uh, context. It could have shown sort of the, the importance and how, um, I guess, kind of groundbreaking his case was and his situation being on death row and his um, trying to um, get executed could have been really interesting. I agree. I think that that would have been pretty interesting because... You know, then when you're witnessing, you know, his his life and the lead up to the murders, you know, maybe you'd have a little bit more of an understanding of, you know, particularly, you know, his story of not really having been rehabilitated, you know, and his complaints about about the prison system. You know, I think that that could have been almost brought out a little bit more you know by the fact that you're going into it knowing that well now he's in prison and you know in prison again and his story about you know why why he wound up back there you know i think i think that might flesh it out a little bit more i like it yeah right on uh so 
what what did you think of the movie overall though oh i thought overall it was really good you know seeing like that vintage tommy lee jones is kind of cool tommy lee jones did such a great job of presenting you know gary gilmore having been in prison for so long and getting out into the quote real world again and being unskilled and unprepared to face society so not just from a relationship perspective but from uh in order to get a job so the first job he gets, which is sort of a, a family connection for repairing shoes, trying to cobble the heel onto a shoe, for instance. He can't keep it on the like shoe mount. He's not good at hitting the nails or removing the heel. And then later on when he is doing this other labor job, there's a scene where he's like he's boring through a slab of wood and he yes. has the drill on reverse. So it's not drilling and the foreman or whoever it is is like, you know, you know, this is this is uh your drills on reverse and he's like oh and then he drills right through it so he's not as surprisingly enough not a skilled laborer so like that struggle and then to getting him to the point of desperation to where he's running guns yeah i think they did a really good job you know kind of early on with his release from prison you know they show his interactions with a woman that he meets at a bar and they end up you know as they're kind of leaving together getting into a bit of an argument and she could like tell that you know he wants to hit her but he doesn't and then you know later on in the movie as he kind of deteriorates you know he does end up hitting nicole yeah who's basically his like true love, his like soulmate, and he can't not become physically violent because he's just, you know, he's too far gone. He's too far gone probably before he's even released from prison. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's tragic. It's, it is. I feel like even if you don't feel a ton of sympathy for him, you know, because of the terrible actions he takes, it's just a tragic story overall. Yeah, my one criticism, and this is sort of the the fault of knowing, you know, the, the true crime that, the true case that we just talked about and that was just how deep of a person he was and i think that a lot of those are sort of pushed aside in order for his like raw emotions to come out in the the movie version of it but you know that (laughs) that's like the the um what's the right word it's the hazard of knowing more about the true case than the movie it is a hazard it has affected my enjoyment of many a film (laughs) yeah well i did find an interesting critique of the movie that was published in the new york times back in uh november actually it was november 28th of 1982 and this was uh written by walter goodman and the title of the article is television exploitation colors the executioner's song And it kind of um, critiques it uh, a little harshly, but I thought it, it was a good section of this review. It says, quote, Although the quality of the book's dialogue gives the film its distinctive style, that kind of literary magic is not readily transferable from page to screen, which brings me back to the question imposed on the audience by the appearance of the, quote, rights buyer, Larry Samuel Schiller. Is the executioner's song exploitive? Well, to get into the courtroom spirit, it can lay claim to a bit more redeeming social, aesthetic, moral, and psychological value than other made-for-TV movies with lesser pretensions. Yes, it has little to add to the arguments over capital punishment, little to reveal about the criminal mind or the mind of Gary Gilmore, except that he found a kind of love at the end of his life. It's a serviceable television vehicle, by no means the creakiest of its kind, built out of the materials of a sensational murder case, fueled with high-octane sex and violence. If it stalls now and then, well, as Gary Gilmore learned, when you buy a used car, a little exploitation is part of the deal. Oh, thanks for the reminder that I will never be successful as a writer, because that final line is just like, mwah. 
That is golden. Bravo. Good job, Walter Goodman. Good job. And you know, I don't think that's a that's a damning critique of the movie. I just I I think it raises some good points. So many of the true crime movies that we cover for the podcast, I mean, they're all a little bit exploitative. They all are. Because this is entertainment that's based on, you know, a real case where often there are real people that are, you know, murdered. I mean, I think that one thing that I'm personally interested in, which is kind of why why we're doing this podcast is, you know, what is it about these cases that, you know, reach that level where people are like, this would make a great entertaining movie that people will want to watch. You know, not not every case is like that, but somehow a lot of them are. Yeah, and it's amazing how like difficult it is to make a movie and just the fact that things align so that something that happened in real life could be adapted into a film or a television show or a novel or a graphic novel or a play, a theatrical production, <laughs> a musical. Like, yeah, it's just pretty incredible. Do we want to just kind of walk through some of the highlights of the movie? Let's go for it. All right, so I wanted to read out not the title card but the some of the opening ons- scrawl yes the yeah. opening scrawl which actually it starts off which i love i think we should do it it's like the drinking game the, fir- the first uh text on screen is a true story take a shot <laughs> yes it's my favorite um but the on-screen scrawl as you said is in the spring of 1976 Gary Gilmore, who had served a sentence of 12 years for armed robbery, was paroled from the federal penitentiary at Marion, Illinois, into the custody of his cousin, Brenda. They had not seen each other since childhood. That's funny because uh, he's got the hots for his cousin. A distant cousin. It does seem like he has the hots for... And I saw some sources that said distant cousin. A lot of them just said cousin. I think... I I don't even know. Yeah. But he he did seem weirdly close. His his cousin's wife was definitely giving him like the dagger eyes from the window of the house as he was kind of playing around with his cousin in the front yard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I think it's... They do have a very meaningful relationship that does play out over the course of the movie where she's ultimately the one that turns him into the police and kind of betrays him in that way. And then ultimately, you know, he, he does forgive her because he knows what he is capable of and he knows that he wouldn't have stopped. So it's it's interesting. And the movie starts with meeting for the first time since they were children and she's his friend and also kind of in a way maybe his downfall. Oh, there's such a great shot of Tommy Lee Jones. He's like exiting the um, gate or the doors of the airport and he's waiting and he stands there and he's just sort of he's excited and he's awkward and it's see i took it i took it as he'd like not seen an automatic door before yeah because he'd been in prison so long which we know is not really true because his time in prison was so sporadic but he was just kind of like yeah going back and forth between these two like doors that were opening automatically before finally Brenda pulls up and she's really happy to see him. He's really happy to see her. Her husband is a little bit less happy. <laughs> yeah. um, but they drive and I feel like there's you know that feeling of freedom of like driving in a car with the windows rolled down and he seems very happy and hopeful. He does, which yeah. Then just gets squashed. It does, but um, you know, it's nice to see he's got some stability and he is um given a chance because there is a job set up for him. So Brenda, who's played by Christine Lottie, the fact that he's able to jump in to make a living with a trade such as shoe repair, I thought that was interesting because it's like a, a hands-on kind of thing. But like I mentioned earlier, this is when he's like bad at it. Not only is he bad at it, but we'll say he's kind of bad at customer relations because like while he's there working in the shop. A like attractive woman walks in and he starts 
kind of like loudly catcalling her as she's leaving in front of like a much older customer. We should say that you know, this is an area in Utah where a lot of people are like Mormons and pretty religious and they kind of mention it almost in passing in the movie but you know probably not the best audience for shouting like hey mama work it or whatever he shouts <laughs> which is like yeah just a terrible cat call in the first place but yeah so he seems to maybe not be doing a great job there and then he he gets another job uh, true to the first story although it seems like his maybe job at the shoe factory continues for longer than 10 days in in the movie um, but he gets a second job it seems a little bit more like with almost with heavy machinery but I guess it's, it's at an insulation factory the boss there seems very fond of him he does yeah. really sees the the potential in Gary and even kind of helps him with the the down payment for a car a used car yep um, yeah a that mustang was awesome well it was so like he's so understanding it was so nice well yeah. gary walks like seven miles to work in the rain and the boss is just you know so overwhelmed by his commitment to the job and this is uh he buys it from is this the val val character yeah it's it's supposed to be i guess the the character in the real story because it's he gets the mustang from the same place that the truck turns up later which like when i do all the research before the movie when certain things come on screen i'm like oh and for me it's like when the truck came up i was like oh because oh, <laughs> no. you know you, when you kind of know what ultimately happens it kind of gets to you i think yeah i wonder what it'd be like on the, with the two nights where you have to like stop and just wait for the next night for it to air and finish and the story especially i think because you know when this aired it was you know, not super long after the real case what was it like so this was 1982 yep. which means that it was only five and a half years after yeah so it's super fresh they're like we can Ooh. make a tv movie we can make this we can crank this thing out suddenly the exploitative factor went up a notch <laughs> so after this car this is when the fateful uh, meeting with nicole occurs yes so he meets her at the home of kind of another worker in the shoe factory and, and there's like a younger guy that's sort of flirting with the two ladies he, he has yeah, like he's, a... he seems he's he's pretty flirty it does seem like but you know she comes and she she actually brings her two kids but hits it off so well with gary that the friend his name is sterling right yeah he like gets you know a babysitter for her so she could just keep talking to gary and being with gary she's much younger which is true to the actual real life events and she looks it I feel like Tommy Lee Jones has his moments of appearing very handsome, but he seems older. Whereas she is, she legitimately looks like she could be 18 or 19. I don't know how, how old she was in real life. You know, this kind of goes along with the idea of, and this is actually presented in the movie also, where, you know, Gary kind of lost his youth by being in prison and is kind of trying to recapture it. Maybe, you know, being with a, a partner who's so much younger, whereas, you know, although she is very young, has really already lived lived through a lot of trauma you know she was sexually molested by a relative and by the time she was 19 she was already married three times i think she was at least widowed once and and you know had had her two children so it's it is quite the combination and i think that it's maybe a little bit understandable how codependent they became so quickly Tommy Lee jones was 35 36 Oh, so the, the exact age. Yeah. yeah. I was like, wow, that's some casting right there. He actually looks nothing like Gary Gilmore, though. I mean, he, he just looks like Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, yeah. It maybe um, suffers a little bit from his face being so recognizable now. Maybe at the time he was not as recognizable, but he's Tommy Lee Jones. He is. So, the, you know, they, they have some tender moments and... um. 
But then Tommy Lee Jones breaks his parole by stealing uh, like a case of beer. I mean, he starts stealing from their first night together. He like steals a banana for her children. Oh, yep. Yeah. So it's like this is when they kind of ease you into the fact that he um, his downfall is going to happen quite quickly. Yeah. But he brings one of the cases of beer to his Uncle Vern sort of to as a peace offering or maybe he's just like, I got to dump this thing. Yeah. But, you know, Vern. So he's I think he was trying to get Vern to like co-sign on the the truck that he wanted you know when oh, the, the right. mustang starts kind of acting up you know, he he wants that truck and he he's... does and but there's there's a little bit of time between when he kind of tries to get it co-signed and when he actually gets the truck because i feel like the truck is such a turning point um, well the i mean the truck in the real story he got the truck the day that he committed the first murder right so, so ahead that's... of ahead of that he's like so he's stealing beer and then suddenly he's running guns Yes, it's and how many and guns we mentioned of, in the in, in the, the true story? I think it was nine, and okay. in this they don't say the amount, but it's a box, and it does seem like it's it's just kind of like it's like weirdly sudden, but not super sudden, where he's just realizing like he he can't afford the things that he wants, yeah, and he wants them. Uh, you know, the truck I think is almost symbolic, but I mean, you know, suddenly he he's living with Nicole with the family. I feel like you know he gets into a fight with his cousin over how serious he is about this relationship this is the barbecue at his cousin's house oh okay yep um oh his cousin's birthday yeah. yeah and it's like weirdly gradual but also kind of sudden where it's you know he's like getting into these fights kind of defending nicole's honor and then suddenly he's getting into fights with nicole and yeah. they're really bad they're really bad um this is just the heartbreaking scene is it's when heartbreaking so he's bringing these guns to sell, and I guess they stop at two places. He has no success. The people aren't there or whatever. And so he's sort of frantically driving with Nicole and the two kids, and she's upset. You know, she asks, like, why can't we just, like, go home? And then he flips out. He's driving down the highway. He turns around and starts hitting uh, one of the children, the baby. Yes, hitting children. Yes. In yeah. case you had any sympathy for him. Well, yeah, and then now hopefully it's gone. Oh yeah, and then Tommy Lee Jones he also like grabs her by the throat while Which he's is driving. Like number one warning sign with domestic violence, you know, in terms of someone being capable of murder, that's strangulation. It's you scary. know, it's it is terrifying. He manages to pull over to the side of the road because I guess you know she's fighting with him to get out of his like headlock or whatever. And he just pushes her out, pushes the kids out. They're on the side of the road. And then he, like, seems to be slightly remorseful in a... Almost. It's the weirdest thing. He's, like, flagging down cars to stop to, like, I guess, pick up Nicole and the children. Yeah. But then a car finally stops. And it's actually someone who knows Nicole and is, like get in the back of the truck now and then suddenly he's like you know no you can't take her you know she's oh, yeah. whatever my girlfriend and then she gets like these two brawny men out of the truck <laughs> and is like are you talking to me yeah <laughs> she's she seems ready to rumble which is like just awesome what what a good friend even though she did load them into the back of a pickup truck which now we all know is not safe for driving um but i mean she gets them the f out of that situation and she is not taking anything from this you know a abusive dude right but i feel like as with the true story this maybe does end up triggering 
the kind of spiral that that he goes down yeah because since that i mean that's the point where they're like broken up he he has like taken way too many steps too far and um then there's just it's almost a montage of him like trying to find nicole and it's actually really frightening and i would imagine similar to how it goes down in real life because he you know stalks her family i think like he like goes to their house that's now empty and there's a vacuum cleaner so he's like figures out that she's gonna come back to pick up the one last thing and so he i guess he sleeps over in the empty house because she comes to get the vacuum cleaner and he pops out in his boxer shorts oh yeah yeah and then she just grabs it and leaves and will not entertain him. He even says to her, oh, you're leaving without the accessories. It's not worth anything without the accessories. Oh, man. Which is so true about vacuum cleaners. It is true. Yeah. yeah. I hope we never lose our little cat hair attachment because that would be worthless afterwards. It would be worthless without its cat hair attachment. But yeah, so he's, I mean, he's kind of going all over, you know, looking for her. He ends up going to her mom's house and actually stashing his collection of guns there that he couldn't sell, you know, giving a gun to her mom yeah and then uh i sorry i totally flaked on her name but uh, she's laura palmer's mother in twin peaks yes she is but he ends up you know as with the the true story he picks up her sister he picks up april and they go for a drive and god it's like they end up well he he gets the truck in the meantime anyway he has the pickup truck so he's doing all this and he's driving around in this pickup truck because he's met with val val has white pickup truck val is reading the news well oh well yeah he's got the he wait does he have no the, he does so it's he goes to val he trades in the mustang as kind of the down payment for this truck and you know gives him some money with as in the true story a promise to pay i think it's like four hundred dollars tomorrow and then four hundred dollars next week or something kind of crazy but he he has his truck now and then that's when he goes and he he picks up april who is nicole's sister and they they drive around. They end up at this gas station yep. where well, just just him though. You know, yes. That's the true story. He he stops and leaves April in the car. He does. He leaves her in the car and he goes he goes up to the um the attendant and he, well he takes the money and the attendant also gives him his like clip of coins and then he's like, Let's go into the men's room. I want you to lay down, put your hands underneath you and then he shoots him twice. Yep. One for him and one for Nicole. It's just so um what's the right word? random yeah i feel like it might have been more shocking for you you know not knowing the real story because i think when you think of these sort of robberies you think well i will comply and i will be fine yeah and this person made you know, no motion against Gary. He did not, you know, he, he gave Gary all of the money. He was absolutely complying and it was just a random, randomly just decided to kill him. The gas station attendant is Max Jensen. This is his first victim. The next day, we see him with Val, and they're talking about the car, they're talking about the truck, and Val has is reading the newspaper about this, quote, like, senseless murder. Yeah, so this was, I think, added for effect in the movie. This is not a real thing. He did not, you know, see Val Conlin yeah. that day. But it is interesting. I was like, is he going to kill Val and just get the truck? Is that how he gets the truck? And I think that it, it kind of portrays him as being totally unaffected and disconnected from the murders. You know, the fact that he's able to you know, listen to someone talk about it with a completely straight face with no change in his demeanor which is not something he experienced in real life so i think it's hard to know how he would react confronted with someone talking about the the crime in the movie they decided to make him cool calm and collected pretty quickly 
as with the real story, he uh, he becomes positioned for his second murder. So his truck is having some issues. He you know goes to a service station and drops it off to get it fixed. And actually, very true to the real story, you know he's he's walking towards his uncle's house, and his uncle lives next door to a motel. And you know he even like I think looks at his uncle's porch, and he at least how I interpreted it was he was remembering his last interaction that you see with his uncle, which is his uncle being angry that he you know brought him a case of beer and violation of his parole and instead of you know going there he goes next door to the motel and he he shoots and kills his victim which is benny bushnell and he steals the cash box they show that you know the the woman who is clearly yeah. shows the alarm they that's his, his wife, wife. i yeah. mean they do a good job of like connecting that and then he kind of just nonchalantly leaves he dumps the gun he shoots his hand and you were like yes they're checking the boxes they're getting it right like the I, movie I was is a little it. bit like you could tell <laughs> i hope i didn't out loud say yes because that would have been weird <laughs> yeah I thought that was internal, but maybe not. <laughs> you may have fist pumped a little bit. <laughs> it's true to the real story. You know, he he has this wound. He goes to pick up his truck and the attendant sees him injured and does kind of make that connection. And actually in the movie, the attendant talks to the uncle and says, I saw Gary with his hand wounded. I think he's the one that did it. And the, the uncle calls Brenda. And actually in, in the movie, Brenda is friends with someone who works for the police station because she actually calls them and has an officer at her house when Gary finally calls her. So Gary goes back to Sterling's house, the co-worker from the shoe repair factory, and he calls Brenda from there and he gives Brenda the address and she says that, you know, she's coming with, with painkiller, I think with like codeine and bandages and then you see over her shoulder that the, the officer is already there. Are there, yeah. And yep. she, she tells the officer, you know, don't have a shootout at Sterling's house because he has a wife and kids. I think that's smart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But ultimately it it kind of happens, you know, the the way it does in the real story where with the roadblock. Yeah, right? he, he like kind of runs. He drives into away it. and then yeah. and then gets pulled over and they're you know, very specific about the instructions yeah uh, we were talking about how he he says well i have my hand wrapped can i just like ease down or like be gentle with me or whatever i, I shot well my in the in true off. story they said he specifically requested for them to like be careful of his, of his hand. wounded hand yeah. in the movie they just make it so obvious that he's wounded where it seems like he's almost suffering from blood loss yeah where he almost like falls out of the car i say get out pavement. of the car right or wait no they're like put your hands outside of the car hands outside the car open the door from the outside get out lay down don't move and then they cuff him and in in the movie you know as opposed to the real story nicole does not witness this but you know she she is contacted after he is in prison for the murder and at first you know she says that she does not want to see him or speak to him but then ultimately she decides to see him and speak to him yes and then he gives her a letter and she falls back in love with him and gets into a car accident because she's so engrossed in this letter that he wrote her can you like tell that i'm not super amused with the way i'm telling this story <laughs> yeah but um, you, you did but then mention she, you she did... runs back she climbs the fence she runs she's outside of the prison she's shouting i love you gary gilmore I love you, Gary Gilmore. I feel like the movie is so much more about his relationship with her versus his psychology of why he is the way he is. Yeah. Um, That's fair. And I think that this this moment in the movie, to me, kind of put that idea front and center in maybe not a great way. 
Yeah, the kind of nearly conjugal visits and stuff between the two of them. Oh, they were having conjugal visits. Yeah, so he's he's in prison and we kind of go through some of the court case. There's a bit of the media wanting to exploit his story, the character of uh what's his name? It was Larry Samuels. Yes. Yeah. Larry and Samuels. Larry Larry Samuels was talking with you know, his uncle, he, he specifically requested that his uncle kind of be in charge of his estate, which at that point was the story. Right. You know, the, the story was his estate and it was worth quite a bit. You know, it was, it was not like it was, you know, worthless or anything. And I feel like this is the part where they sort of skimp over the details of, you know, his case being the first death penalty case and the kind of how crazy the media circus really was. They show it somewhat, but I I knew about the story going in. Would you have thought going into it that, you know, he was getting phone calls from Johnny Cash and he was being parodied on SNL? Yeah, in terms of the notoriety and how the outside world was reacting to this case specifically, I think that wasn't presented as clearly or as powerfully as it could. One thing that I thought was interesting when they were talking about kind of selling the rights to his case was they had this discussion of his story being worth less money if he changes his mind at the last minute and decides he wants to appeal. I just thought that was kind of just a a bit of a kind of messing with your mind being like thinking of that sort of decision as being something with a monetary value yeah was was very bizarre but i think a an interesting touch and i'm I'm sure true that you know debate and the selling of his story was happening while he was still alive but also towards the end of his life they present the suicide pact they they do they have the suicide pact including the smuggling of the drugs in our version and i'm curious as to what the like television version was that because it was fair fairly obvious that she was smuggling it in her vagina yeah yes yes which is true true to the real story that is how she got the the drugs in but i think like you explained to me the whole like timing thing of it that wasn't clear yes in the movie. that was that was not clear in the movie although there was actually brenda was on the phone with with him and talking about i guess the way she explained it was that he knew the amount of barbiturates he took was not enough to kill him because he was very familiar with the drug oh, whereas yeah. you know she would not have known so she was more at risk so brenda knew that he was trying to get get her to kill himself while he would not die which is true to the real story and as in the real story this was his last interaction with Nicole. Circumstances lead to him having his sort of last request party. Now, you had mentioned that his request was for a six-pack of beer. Yes, which I actually didn't say in the real story. So his I mean, request yeah. was for a six-pack of beer, but I read his final meal was kind of a typical like steak and potatoes type meal that he ultimately ended up getting. But yes, I think you know, true to the real story, kind of the night before his execution, you know, his family did come to visit him and it, it was almost like jubilant. It made me feel some sympathy for him in that scene I gotta admit I mean it's you know I think you know, seeing the way he kind of interacted with the guards he, he was like a funny intelligent guy you oh, know that, that Tommy just, Lee Jones oh yeah he's also Tommy Lee Jones which I think he just oh no Tommy Lee Jones yeah. Um, but yeah it's they have like a, a big party and also true to the real story almost up to the last minute they didn't know if they were going to go through with the execution I mean can you imagine this is I mean the execution was it four or five years earlier was deemed unconstitutional you know there were no executions in utah for 16 years before this point and then suddenly this person who you know finishes their trial in october and then just a couple months later in january he's suddenly going to be executed so although they show in the movie there are a bunch of people kind of camped out in front of 
the prison, a bunch of members of the press, you know, suddenly, you know, shortly before he was essentially doing the death walk, the walk from his cell to where he was going to be executed. You know, there's someone running around from camper to camper being like, it's actually happening. Get your cameras ready. Come out. It's happening. And that's that's all real. That's all true to the story. So that's ultimately how it happens. They have him walk out to a minivan. He sits in. They turn on the radio and then turn off the radio. And he says, turn the radio back on. As with the real story, he's, he seems very conscious of his decision and unwavering, I guess, in his decision. His last words are, let's do it. He has the interaction with the priest as he does in the real story. Um, actually, the first thing he says to the priest, which is in Latin, which I can't remember, but it's the response yeah he has like a response to the priest but when he's speaking with the priest like he's the one that's kind of taking on the priest role which i think is interesting because in his childhood he had wanted to be a priest he wanted to be you know a man of god and he's kind of taking on the role of saying you know the lord is with you and then the priest responds and also with you and then he says to the priest which is his last words in real life you know there will always be it's often misattributed as there will always be a father which is just like a general term for the priest in the actual story so this is when he says there will always be a Mearsman. And then they, they show the putting the, like you said, they put the marker over his heart and he has the like cloth over his face and he is shot and dies there's kind of a focus on the end also where you know they're handing out like cotton balls to put in people's ears but before the the character of larry samuels can even get the cotton ball in in his second ear the shots ring out it's just it's just over and this is the part where i was talking about the sound editing just being so powerful almost his shirt is black you can't really see anything happening until they show like the blood which almost looks black like dripping off his white pants it's just it's good that's very powerful it's It's very powerful it's very tragic i think that it does lean on the side of being what's the right word sympathetic to the plight i agree to me it, it did feel like it was something that you know seemed to be against the death penalty which i think it's an interesting case to be talking about that topic which because there's no question that he's guilty but these are the cases where i think it's almost more important to talk about the death penalty because there are so many good arguments against the death penalty that are arguments saying there's actually a possibility that this person is innocent do you want to put them to death you know knowing that this possibility exists but this case may makes you think about you know that this person is guilty but do they deserve the death penalty you know because of you know they were almost put in it's like a lose-lose situation yeah you know i think that the the deck was really stacked against him you know even if he was also you know being predisposed to being someone who's capable of doing such a thing it's, it's a weird interesting sad tragic case yeah and it's it's the end of the movie i mean that's, that's yep. the end of the movie that's the end january 17th 1977 gary gilmore was executed by firing squad we're gonna move on as we wrap this episode up chelsea do you have a um an outplane yes as I mentioned earlier, there's a third promo for this episode. We're going to wait and we're going to play it actually after we wrap this up. It's quite the treat. So this is a new podcast called Being There. It's hosted by uh, our buddy Dick, the uh, one of the co-hosts 
of the Off the Cuffs podcast, who, I mean, we've been friends with since the very beginning. Yeah. But he's got a new podcast that is really awesome. It just started March 1st. It's called Being There. And this is a podcast. It's not quite true crime, but it has, at least so far, a bit of a, a true crime tilt. So it's a podcast about people who have just experienced really extraordinary things. So the uh, very first episode is actually about Dick's experience of being born into a cult. And their next episode that's coming out is about someone who was the victim of an attempted murder. So first two right off the bat, I think definitely would be of interest to to our more true crime slanted uh, listeners. So please be sure to check them out and you know, stay tuned after our uh, death is but a door to to hear a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, so awesome. What's your now playing? My now playing is the gate. We just watched the uh, Vestron home video Blu-ray. Uh, that was a lot of fun. I had not seen that in a while. Really? I hadn't seen it since I was a child, an actual child. <laughs> Two lines that do not hold the test of time. Oh, there are quite a few. Are there quite a few? Uh, there were two in particular that really stood I guess out. There, I guess it was just two, but man, did they stand out to me. I was yeah. like, Ooh. oh, how was I allowed to watch this as a child? Yeah, and woof. Then, um, yeah, oof. <laughs> But uh, the movie Ooh. overall is really fun. Um, yeah, yeah. It was interesting watching the kind of behind the scenes stuff afterwards, too, about how they did the like little tiny demon critters. It's really neat. Yeah, forced perspective, people in suits, stop motion, all that good stuff. It was a lot of fun. What else? What do we got? Uh, what's after What's after now playing? Is that coming soon? I believe it is coming soon. All right. Uh, you got anything coming soon, Chelsea? I do. So my coming soon is Veronica. Uh, it's a new Netflix movie. Actually, you, David. <laughs> showed me? me the the trailer for it yesterday and it looked awesome and creepy and then people were just talking about it in our Facebook group today and I think a couple of them are probably watching it right now and I'm really jealous of them because oh, right. I'm just a hungry person sitting here recording a podcast <laughs> wishing I was eating and watching Veronica um, but that that would be yeah yeah my coming soon I'm really excited about that it's supposed to be extra scary right uh, what about you what's your coming soon uh the gate too <laughs> <laughs> oh, what awesome wife bought you that Blu-ray when you were really upset because the VHS tape broke? Why, Could that was me? you, sweet Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you for gifting me with The Gate 2 on Blu-ray from the Scream Factory. And it just came out on Tuesday and it was here on Tuesday. So you're amazing. Thank you. Aww. I feel like we should do an extra small shout out to iMadman though because when the gate 2 vhs tape broke in our player breaking our hearts uh we had i madman to watch and it was great i actually really really enjoyed it yeah i madman uh so good um we briefly mentioned it um actually because jenny wright is in the executioner's song it's just so cool it's like a it's from the same team that made the gate it is directed by tibor takox did the gate and Man, the movie is awesome. It's basically about a bookshop clerk that finds a... Well, this doctor comes to life um, after she reads uh, some horror novels. It's so good. Yeah. I liked it. Dare I say I liked it more than The Gate. Actually, not dare I say. I actually liked it a lot more than The Gate. I did too. All right. I'm with you. Awesome. Well, yeah. let us wrap this up. Yes. Um, check us out on social. I know if you're listening to the show, you have probably heard it. Heard it again and again and again. But they say... You have to um, to pick up a habit. You got to hear something 11 or 17 times, something like that, right? I think like 25 to 30 times. Yeah. Now we're on our 25th full episode plus a couple mini sets. Yes. Instagram 
at based on a true crime twitter chelsea is all over twitter at true crime based check us out on facebook zuckerberg doesn't want you to see our posts but you can find us at based on a true crime podcast however we have circumvented this due to their algorithmic changes by creating a discussion group this discussion group is called cult of based on a true crime and it Join. is so much fun it is uh, it's my favorite. we've had just awesome interactions with people who who've listened to us on there just the coolest people seriously yeah. join it join us join our cult join us we promise we won't make you do anything weird like drink some poison kool-aid become one of us uh we'll approve you really quickly what is what's that called approval lock that's just so uh i don't know what it's for anyway um join well, us we don't want to have it be an open group because we don't want your friends to know how creepy you are by listening to us yes exactly that's right so it's a closed group but you don't have to answer any questions you no. just request to join and and we let you in that's yeah it. chelsea and i fight we're like trying to race to approve people so that's fun yeah. um also the big hot thing now the thing that we have found really rewarding as well um beyond just all of your awesome feedback has been our patreon we also give you bonus content and stickers and stuff and you know hope we want we really want to make the patreon be for you so we keep saying to our patreon supporters you know tell us what you want every month we will be posting a poll where you know you pick between two topics for an episode and we're alternating months with picking episodes so you know mine will be a little bit more about true crime david's will be a little bit more about horror so you know last month we did silence of the lambs which is one of my favorite movies uh we did the entity this month which is a you know creepy horror ghost movie not Uh, one of my favorite movies however it is a horror movie so yeah yeah so just tell us what you want, what you really, really want. I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. I wanna, uh, really? I want to, I want to, I want to, I, wanna, I, wanna, I, wanna, I really, really, really want to zig a zig ah. If you want to check out my artwork, you got to yes. check out at Lab Creature. At Lab Creature, that's David's artwork. And we will be at Horror Hound. Cincinnati. Cincinnati. Yes, we'll be at Horror Hound Cincinnati, March 23rd, March 24th, and 25th. Fifth at Sharonville Convention Center. There is going to be a Child's Play reunion. Alex Vincent, director Tom Holland, Fiona Dorff, Brad Dorff, all those folks are going to be there. So please come check out a bunch of new artwork that I have been working on. Chelsea has been working on with me. We will have new stuff. It will be fun and awesome if you are in the Midwest and in the Ohio slash Cincinnati area. If not, later on we will probably be in Indianapolis yeah. for Horrorhound as well. If you come with the magic code word, which is, uh, hey, don't you guys have that podcast? <laughs> I'll, I'll have stickers and buttons and stuff. So just just find us. Yep, find us. Also, um, just wanted to say that our amazing, amazing, amazing music, our theme music is composed and performed by uh, Nico Vitis of We Talk of Dreams, who can be found on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams, the website wetalkofdreams.com, and on Instagram at We Talk of Dreams. We love the work you have done for us. Thank you so much, kind sir. As the show winds down, just remember as death. Chelsea is starving in the corner. Yeah, as uh, as it as it winds down, just remember death is but a door, and time is but a window. We'll be back, and also please stay tuned because we are playing the promo for being there right now. Hi everyone, this is Dick from Off the Cuffs, a kink and BDSM podcast, and this is a little five minute preview of my new podcast called Being There. Welcome to Being There, a podcast devoted to exploring the extraordinary aspects of everyday people's lives. 
I'm Dick. And I'm Kelly. And this is episode one, Being in a Cult. What's so interesting is that this is a part of your life that I know about, but I know very, very little about. Well, I was I was just a kid when it happened, so I don't know how, how great I'm going to be at talking about it. It's all right. Just, you know, we'll just get into what you remember and okay. go from there. All right. Yeah. I mean, I guess... I guess for this one, we should just mm-hmm. kind of like right out of the gates, just be yeah. like, so you were born into a cult. I was born into a cult. <laughs> yes, uh, that's very true. Uh, my parents were followers of the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, who is then known as the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. He's currently known as Osho, even though he's been dead since the 80s. Yeah. Uh, the Osho organization is still active, unfortunately. But, um, and, um, yeah, so I my parents were members of this cult before I was born, and uh, I was born with my, you know, I have an actual birth legal name that's on my birth certificate, my driver's license, and I think my parents always kind of had some foreshadowing that <laughs> this would not be forever, because thankfully the name on my you know, birth certificate is not Swami Anand Virajana, um, <laughs> which was the name I went by for the first nine years of my life. Yeah, that's um, a long time. Yeah, very, mm. and the formative years too, where yeah, you really exactly. connect with that name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did your parents meet in the cult, or did they no, join it together? They joined it together. Uh, okay. My parents were like, you know, hippies, and they 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 had tried a bunch of different stuff. They had followed other Indian gurus. Um, I. Th- think Scientology because my dad was an actor in New York in the 70s so probably Scientology was in there for a little bit it makes mm. sense yeah. very popular things to go together right. there are you know uh, other like I said other Indian gurus and like Eastern philosophies um, but uh, yeah so they were right can you can you give us a little bit of the background of the cult I'm, I'm sure I was gonna say I'm pretty familiar with a lot of cults because mm-hmm. that's the weird things I'm interested in but I want to hear about this. All right. Well, if you were uh, cognizant in the 80s, you probably remember uh, this cult. This was the commune in Oregon where everybody wore red um, and, you know, waved at the Rolls Royces that uh, followers had bestowed on the leader. Um, (laughs) And um, uh, so the leader was this Indian immigrant who called himself the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. I don't remember his actual legal name. Um, who had this philosophy of like free love and uh, the idea that the world was going to end. I wouldn't say we were a doomsday cult per se, but there was always this uh, underwriting philosophy that uh, the world was going to end, but the followers would be safe because they knew the one true path. Mm-hmm. Um But it wasn't like, like uh, Jonestown or um, Hellbop where they were like, um, preparing for that, you know, it was just enough. Right. If you lived in Oregon or in the ashram in India, you'd be safe. Uh, but it was like this this weird mix of Indian philosophy. It was a lot of what's funny is um, people will still be. There are people that are still critical of the actual practice of the cults, as rightly so. Who will say that he did write some of the definitive uh, the definitive guides on medi- uh, meditation. Um, 
The Skepticopedia actually suggests that you shoplift his books on meditation because they're good meditation guides, but you shouldn't give money to the Osho organization. <laughs> um, so if you liked what you heard, uh, please subscribe to the show now. Uh, we have a five-minute trailer episode, which is just me and Kelly talking about why we started the podcast. And episode one, which is the little clip that you just heard, will be out on March 1st. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Podcast Addict, Podbean, Pocket Cast, and we will be on many, many more players. We're updating those uh, right now. Uh, you can also go to our Twitter or Instagram at BeingTherePod, and you can check out a link in our profile. There's a directory to more players that we're on. Um, thanks. Good night. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.